You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Crossing Church and everyone who is watching online. My name is Jared Pitney. I'm one of the pastors here of the Crossing Church and I'm joined today by Adam Breckenridge who is uh, not only uh, one of the fellow pastors with me here at the Crossing Church but also is a lifelong friend. And when I say lifelong friend, uh, I literally mean lifelong friend. Uh, here's a picture my mom sent me just a few weeks ago and this is Adam and I. It's when we play baseball together in Little League. Uh, you can see Adam. He is at the uh, top row, far left, uh, standing by my dad, who I believe was our head coach that year. And then there's little old me down in the far right, uh, bottom row with a turtleneck on. And so before you knock that, just so you know, what was that, like 92, mm-hmm. 93? Mm-hmm. And so uh, Zach Morris was wearing turtlenecks back then, too. So that was the thing to do. But um, yeah, we've been lifelong friends for a long time. We were on the baseball team, and now... As you can see in this next picture, uh, we are part of a biker gang. That's right. And so we're taking applications for those who are interested. Um, right. But anyway, so glad to be able to tag team uh, preach with you today. Thanks again to each person who is tuning in. If you are a guest, I want to encourage you. We're going to drop a connect link uh, in the comment section for you. Click on that. Uh, fill out some information about you and your family. And that's just a way of us to get a record of your visit, uh, to know who you are, and to be able to love you and serve you to the best of our ability. Yeah, hey, and welcome everybody. Uh, so good to be uh, joining you here, Jared. Glad that you uh, don't have a turtleneck on today. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. By Appreciate the way, it. your dad's mustache is, uh, I think that maybe that would be something for you to consider moving forward as well, because it was pretty epic. We'll consider that. Yeah, um, so good to be here with you today. Good to be in this online space with you all. Hey, real quick, I just want to point something out for those of you who maybe haven't heard. Uh, one week from today, on June 7th, we will have our first uh, live, physical, in-person gathering in our facility since the shutdown. Obviously, that's going to look a little bit different. We're going to have social distancing guidelines in place. And if you'd like to know more about what that's going to look like and how you can participate in that, uh, we have a video that you can watch. In fact, um, in the comments section of whatever uh, uh, platform you're watching this on right now, we should be dropping a link in there for you. So click that, watch that video later. And, you know, we're real excited about this. I mean, finally, no more preaching to an empty room, hopefully. Finally, no more preaching to an empty room. And and on some level, just beginning to gather again in person because we've really missed you all. And so, uh, again, that's June 7th, 1030 a.m. in this space. Watch that video. And uh, for those of you who can make it, we look forward to seeing you there. Yeah, so that being said, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. Um, As we come to a close in our series, we've entitled this Incredible Opportunity. And while you're turning there, I just want to start with a story that kind of highlights really one of the scariest moments uh, from my life. And it was whenever I was in ninth grade, it was 6.45 a.m. on a Friday morning, and all of a sudden I was uh, awakened by my mom screaming, and she was crying. I've got a brother named Grant, and she came barging into my room. I was asleep, and she just began to scream, hey, your brother, he's not breathing. Grant's not breathing. He's not breathing. And so I jump out of my bed. I run into the bathroom where I find my brother. Uh, he is underwater. His lips are blue. His body is lifeless. 
lifeless. And, and, and in that moment, I just I, I go and I pick him up out of the water and I begin to just shake him. And I begin to just, you know, yell at him, like, like Grant, like, wake up, wake up, wake up. And he's not moving. And so I kind of begin to slap his face. And again, like, please, like, wake up, don't die. And of course, I'm crying. My mom's crying. And in that moment, I, I just realized, like, shaking him's not working. And so uh, what I did is I guess kind of instinct kicked in and I just began CPR. And, and so I begin to breathe into his mouth, you know, one breath, two, three, and then I go to chest compressions and then back to breathing and then back to chest compressions and did this several times. And eventually, fortunately, my brother, he, he sat up out of the water and he coughed up some water, I guess, that he had inside of him. And then he began to breathe. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and he was, you know, somewhat disoriented. So he covered himself up and he's like, what are you doing in here? Like, you got to get out of the bathroom, man. Like I'm naked. And of course, I'm still crying. And I'm like, dude, I just saved your life. Like, like, like you were dead, and because of me, like now you are alive. And though that was a really tragic moment, it's something that, that we still somewhat look back and laugh about today because for the next few years, if I wanted to say wear one of his shirts, uh, I'd be like, can I wear your shirt? And if he said no, I'd be like, dude, you remember, like, I saved your life? Like, the whole reason you can even wear that shirt is because of me. And so really, you know, again, kind of a traumatic moment, but fortunately he's doing well today. And the whole reason I share that story with you is because what I want you to realize and what we want you to know as pastors is that as much as my brother needed me to step into the middle of his crisis and breathe life into his lungs, we believe that we desperately need God to step in the middle of our crisis and breathe life into our souls. We need him to revitalize us and awaken us to the life that I believe that many of us, even inside the church at this point, have been missing out on. Yeah, I could not agree more. You know, it's like we've said every week in this series that this crisis in and of itself is not a good thing, and yet we believe that it's a gift in the sense that God is using this as an opportunity to interrupt our lives and, and shake us awake to the reality that we need him. Like life outside of his presence does not work. Um, and I think that's the core lie that all of us are tempted to believe is that um, if with enough human effort and human ingenuity and resources, we can actually make progress without God's presence. We can actually achieve a kind of utopia or paradise without the presence of God, right? If we just have, you know, the right um, systems in place, the right, right political leaders in place, if we've got the right conditions, the right information, then, then we can produce good, moral, happy human beings. And we can do things like fix racism and heal social and systemic uh, injustice and oppression. And we can, we can cure the addiction epidemic. And, and tragically, this, this kind of thinking has made its way into the church as well. And I know that I'm guilty of this, mm -hmm. thinking that like, man, if we just have the right leaders in place, the right structures in place, we have a great Sunday experience and the preaching is good and the music's good and we have good programs, then there will be a successful church. We'll have, our, you know, the mission will go forward, uh, we'll grow, we'll see lives transformed. And I think what God is doing in this moment is he's really stripping us of a lot of the things that we have looked to and, and depended on to to, in a sense, save us and give us a sense of security. And God is bringing us to a place where we realize that you can have all those conditions in place, and yet your life is perfectly designed to fail if God doesn't move, like if you don't have God in your life. And our mission as a church is perfectly designed to fail if God doesn't move, mm -hmm. if God is not present. Uh, good preaching won't do it. Uh, great music won't do it. Good programs and community structures won't do it. And, and if you're watching this and, and, and you, know, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, then you have to think about this in different categories. And so for you, maybe it's a political reality. And, and, and what you have to realize in this moment is Donald Trump can't save us. Right. Joe Biden can't save us. Dr. Fauci can't save us. Uh, your own, think about your own personal 
accomplishments. There's no, mm-hmm. no amount of success that can save you. Your bank account, you mm-hmm. can pad your life with all kinds of comforts and none of those things are going to cut it. Yeah. The, the reality is your only hope and my only hope is to have a life-changing encounter with God's presence. Mm-hmm. Or put another way, we need revival. And when we talk about revival, in short, what we're getting at is revival is when the Spirit of God moves on a people in a supernatural, surprising, and accelerated way. So revival is this thing that happens when God pours out His presence in such a way that people are converted and, and they place their faith in Jesus. And there's a, there's a deepening of repentance and holiness that takes place in the church. And there's an increase of the fruit of the Spirit. So people's lives are bursting forth with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, you know, goodness and self-control. And there's, there's the healing of, of emotional and physical wounds. And there's racial reconciliation. And, and enemies are forgiving one another. And marriages are restored. And justice prevails. And so, in essence... When revival breaks out, you, you begin to experience the kingdom of God flourish on earth as it is in heaven. And in a revival, God, God does all of that in an accelerated way. So what would normally take right. 20 years to happen happens, you know, in a couple of months. Or what would normally take decades, God does in a matter of days. Yeah. And we see this kind of move from God take place in the scriptures, but you also see this kind of move from God take place throughout world history. Um, as a staff, we just started reading a book uh, called Revival in, in the Hebrides, which Jared is going gonna, is gonna to quote from in just a moment. And it's a revival that took place in Scotland in the 1950s where you saw thousands and thousands of people come to faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Duncan Campbell, who uh, was a pioneer of that revival, said that 75% of those people who came to faith in Jesus, that didn't happen in a church building. That didn't happen like in a church pew or a church setting. But these people were doing everyday normal stuff, like they were working in the field, they were commuting to work, changing diapers, cooking dinner, and the weight of God's presence fell on them That's in such crazy. a way yeah. that they just fell to their knees, fell to their faces and said, like, my life doesn't work without you. I can have all this other stuff in place, and if I don't have you, I've got nothing. I'm, I'm bankrupt. And so people begin to cry out for forgiveness and experience this personal renewal that overflowed into renewing their entire region. And man, as a church, that's why we planted. That's why yeah. we exist. That really is. That's, that's our heartbeat as a church. Yeah, yeah. I think about that story from Habakkuk chapter 3 where Israel's at an all-time low. I mean, people are worshiping these false gods, and they know that the Babylonian armies are on the move and coming their way. So they know Jerusalem is about to be sacked. It's about to be destroyed, and they're going to be led away into captivity. And it's in this moment of crisis that the prophet Habakkuk, he sees us coming. And in faith, he cries out to God. I want to just put this verse on the screen for you. But this is Habakkuk's prayer. He says in chapter 3, verse 2, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in all of your deeds. Repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. So Habakkuk is like, I've heard the stories, God. Like, like I've heard about the Exodus narrative. Like, I've heard of your supernatural visitations. I've heard from my family and my friends, my parents and my grandparents about your mighty and miraculous works. But God, I'm tired of just hearing about it. Like, I want you to do what you have done now in our day, again, in our time. And I just want you to know, like, as pastors, this is what is stirring in our hearts right now. Yes. I mean, just yeah. last week, if you would have saw me at St. Mary's Cemetery, you thought I was a crazy man. I was just walking around, like, crying out to God, like, please, God, like, bring revival. I don't just want to hear about these stories. I want to see you do it right here, right now in our time. Like, God, I don't want to just hear these rumors of you. Like, I want to have these personal encounters with you. And again, I know that's not just 
my heart, but that is your heart. It's the heart of our pastors as well. It is uh, to live in such a way that we experience God, um, just basically bring his fire, that we see the fire of God to fall on us so that that then leads to a transformation of our entire city. Absolutely. And you know, that's, that's exactly what we see happen in our text today in First Kings 18. So just let me set the context for you. Um, Israel has turned away from Yahweh, their God. Uh, they've been led astray by the king Ahab and his wife Jezebel um, out of worshiping Yahweh and into worshiping this false god named Baal. And um, because Israel continues to just head further and further away from God, eventually the prophet Elijah has had enough of this. And he just says, look, I'm, I'm done with this. Enough is enough. And so he comes to uh, the king Ahab and he challenges him to a showdown between Elijah's God, Yahweh, and their God, Baal. And Elijah says, the game is, let's set up two altars, one to Yahweh and one to Baal, and uh, we'll put a bull on the altar, we'll prepare it for sacrifice, and then the plan is you round up the 450 prophets of Baal and allow them to call down fire from Baal to consume the sacrifice. I'll call down fire from heaven uh, for the creator God to bring fire and consume the sacrifice. And whichever God answers and sends the fire, that's the one true God who's worthy of worship. And Ahab says, sounds reasonable to me. Game on. Let's do this. And so the prophets of Baal go first. You have 450 prophets gathered around this altar and they're crying out to Baal and he's not answering. So um, they began to do things to try to get his attention. They scream louder. They mm-hmm. dance. They slash themselves. Nothing. No response. Totally overkill. Totally overkill. <laughs> and so then Elijah engages in, in a form of ancient trash talking that like rivals Michael Jordan's trash talking. Like it's incredible. And so he begins to taunt them and say things yeah. like, maybe, uh, maybe Baal just can't hear you, right? Like maybe he's, uh, maybe he's asleep. Maybe right. he's just busy. Or I know Maybe he's just using the bathroom and he's unavailable at the moment. And uh, meanwhile, as, as, he's, as he's jeering at them, they just continue to literally pour out their blood, sweat, and tears, and they're getting no response from Baal. And so finally, Elijah steps onto the court you know, with his shoes laced up, and he says, you guys can take a seat. My turn. Let me cry out to Yahweh. And let's see what happens. Yeah, so we'll just pick up in verse 30. We can put this on the screen for you. But it says, Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Now, we could preach a whole sermon on this. Uh, This is a great example of what happens when a revival comes to town, Mm -hmm. is worship of the one true God is repaired. Uh, You Mm -hmm. see it take, you know, front and center stage. So that's what's happening here whenever Elijah repairs the altar. And then, after he repairs the altar, I want you to look at verse 33, because what happens is, is Elijah says to the crowd, hey, I want you to feel these four large jars of water and then pour it out on the offering and the wood. And I want you to just think about for a moment how crazy this is. I mean, there has been a famine in the land right. for years. And what Elijah says is, I want you to take the most precious commodity we have, which is water, and pour it out on this altar. And so the crowd goes, they fill the jars with water, they pour it out on the bull. Elijah says, okay, do it again. Hmm. So they go and they fill more jars of water, and then they pour it out on the altar, on the bull. And he says, do it one more time, one more time. And so they go, and again, they fill up these jars, and they come and they pour it out on the altar. So if you think about it, I mean, the bull and the altar is absolutely drenched. But then look at this. This is in verse 36. This is at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all these things that you commanded. Answer me, Lord, answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. So Elijah's like, I want you to do this not to make me famous, but God, so people know who you really are, Mm. that you are who you say you are. 
Then verse 38, don't miss this. The fire of the Lord fell, and it burned up the sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. When all of the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Mm. I mean, what a crazy story. Mm. Elijah has this discontentment with the way things are in his culture. And out of his discontentment, he says, enough is enough. God, I want you to prove who you really are to these people. And so he cries out to them. And through his prayer, fire falls from heaven. And as a result, what happens? The people fall prostrate to the ground. I mean, they fall on their faces. And they begin to basically say, like, Baal who? Like, Baal's a nobody. Like, the Lord, he is the one true God. And again, this is a picture of what happens whenever revival begins to sweep through a church and a city as people who have been apathetic and ho-hum and building their lives on people or things that cannot satisfy them. They begin to turn from that, and they begin to see the glory of God. They say, God, you are bigger, you are better, you are more beautiful than we could ever imagine, and therefore, God, I'm going to forsake everything that Mm -hmm. has ever caused me, that has ever driven a wedge between you and me, and I'm going to position myself in such a way that I can experience the fullness of your presence again. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And when you continue in the story, too, you, you see that this radical move of God uh, doesn't stop with people on the mountain. Because look what happens next in verses 41 through 46, and I'll read this for you. It says, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. He hears the sound of a heavy rain, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. So he begins to pray on the mountain. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There's nothing there, his servant said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. And the seventh time, the servant reported, I see a cloud as small as a man's hand rising from the sea. And so Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot, get out of town before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky began to grow black with clouds and wind rose and heavy rain started falling and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. So here's the point. God's about to make it rain. And what Elijah wants us to see is that it's not just about the rain. The rain represents that there's going to be a fresh outpouring of God on the city. God is about to pour himself out and make himself known for the purpose of revival, which has already begun to happen. It starts with fire pouring out on, on Mount Carmel, right? And, and you see the beginning of revival. There's a restoration of worship. People are placing, placing their faith in God. They're getting right with God. And now God is about to pour out a second wave of his presence and power by sending down a heavy rain on this people who have been living in a drought. But notice this. This is, this is what's crucial. This, is, this was a game changer for me to notice this this week. The, the journey of revival that you see in this story of God pouring himself out and making himself known, it doesn't go from fire directly to God sending the rain. There's a detour in between those mm-hmm. two things. Mm-hmm. And the detour is there's literally a mountain in the middle. Yeah. So starts with fire. It's going to end with God unleashing rain on the city, but there's literally a mountain in the middle. Yeah. And what we have to see in this text is that that mountain, if you want to experience God, the outpouring of God, that mountain represents the priority of prayer. Mm-hmm. That's how Elijah embraces the mountain. He goes up on top of the mountain, he bends his face down to the ground, and there he prays. He prays for God to send the rain. And he goes up and prays, and he goes up alone, if you notice in the text, because 
nobody really wants to do the hard work of prayer, right? Like he goes up alone because prayer is not the sexy thing. It's, it's, it's a hard work. It can even be boring, you know? And so um, everybody's like, I kind of want to be part of the awakening. I want to see the, the fire fall. I want to experience the rain. I want to see God and feel God move, but I don't want to do the heavy lifting and the hard work of prayer. Maybe we can outsource that to the, the, to the grandmas. Uh, maybe we can, you know, where my, where my old prayer warriors at? Maybe those people can handle that. And Elijah just wants us to see in this text, that's not the way this works. Right. He sees the fire falling. He hears the rain coming and he realizes that um, the, you can have all the conditions in place, but the only way you're going to call this into reality is through prayer. And so that's what he does. He prays. And as a result, God pours out water on a dry, thirsty land and you see revival take place. You yeah. see people and you see a place go from famine to flourishing. Yeah, I mean, and that's what we all long for, yes. uh, whether you're a Christian or not, right? We want to go from famine to flourishing. We want to see the renewal yeah. and the restoration of all things. And therefore, the question that I think we have to ask then is because we all long for revival is what can we actually do? to position ourselves for this kind of revival? What can we do to position ourselves in such a way that we experience this individual renewal that leads to this kind of citywide revival where this city begins to reflect the beauty of the city that is to come? How do we position ourselves for that kind of move? Yeah, that, that is the question. And so um, to, to say that we can do anything to create or put on a revival is not necessarily true. But like you said, there's things that we can do to position ourselves for revival. And the way we see it in the scriptures and throughout church history, there are at least four stages that we need to move through, four things that we need to have in place in order for us to see God move. And the, the first thing, if you're taking notes, is that it all starts with a holy discontentment. This is the first thing you have to have in place uh, for revival to happen. It starts with a holy discontentment. And you see this in the life of Elijah. He looked around at the brokenness of the city, the corruption of the king and, and Jezebel. He looks at the lostness of hundreds and hundreds of people who are worshiping false gods. And he says, look, enough is enough. And he has this holy discontentment that precedes the fire of God. Mm-hmm. And, and like Elijah, if, if we're going to position ourselves for revival, we have to cultivate in us a holy discontentment with the state of the world. Mm-hmm. And that happens whenever you look around at the injustices the sinfulness, the brokenness, the lostness all around you. And there's this sense deep in your gut that things in the world are are not the way they're supposed to be. And no longer do you want to sit back and play armchair quarterback or just, you know, uh, critique and slam things on social media. But, But the problems around you all of a sudden become your problems. And you're moved with this holy discontentment to move toward the brokenness. And so you begin to have this this holy dissatisfaction develop in you mm-hmm. for the state of the world and also for the state of the church. Right. Um, and not like in a nitpicking sense, but you, you don't want the church to be a, a cruise ship, like this thing that just floats along. But you, you, see, you begin to see the church as a battleship. Like, c- come on, we have a mission here. Right. Like, our mission is to spread the kingdom of God mm-hmm. and to bring light into the darkness and the brokenness around us. And you have a discontentment that says, I don't want the church to be full of consumers but of contributors right of of disciples who are hungry for more of god's presence like come be hungry with me let's get after this let's lean into what god is doing let's pray for the presence of god to flood and renew the earth and so as this holy discontentment kind of ferments and stirs in you not only does it begin to develop like for the state of of the world and the state of the church but you begin to have uh, a holy discontentment with the state of your own life like with the level of your own faith and no longer pointing fingers at others, 
you realize your own inadequacy and you realize that if change is going to happen, that change has to start with you. Yeah, and so that kind of leads us to our second point, which is if you want to see revival, it starts with the holy discontentment, but then it leads to personal repentance. Right. And this is exactly what we see in 1 Kings 18, where the fire of God falls, the Spirit moves, and here's the thing, and you've got to get this. When the Spirit of God moves into a people, it always, the Spirit, He always moves us towards inward repentance mm-hmm. rather than outward critique. Right. Put another way, right. when revival's about to break out, we stop saying like, yeah, those people, they're mm-hmm. the problem. Like, they're the reason society in America is the way it is. And then rather than focusing so much on all of those people being the problem, we say actually the biggest problem is probably inside right. of me, it's me. And it's called sin. I mean, I think mm-hmm. of, of Isaiah whenever he first encountered the holiness of God. I mean, what does he do? He falls to his face and he says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. Mm-hmm. Now, this is what happens right here in this story. When the presence of God falls, there's conviction of sin that gives birth to this deep inner desire to get right with God, to pursue holiness. Mm-hmm. And if we can be honest, like our pursuit of holiness is really not that strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, my own pursuit mm-hmm. of holiness is really not that strong. I mean, even mm-hmm. just this past week, as I was working on this sermon, I found myself being like, God, like, please birth in me this desire to get right with you at all costs. Yeah. Like, God, grant me faith, grant me repentance, whether it's around my finances or my sexuality or my relationships or how I lead my family or this church. God, I want to do whatever it takes to be able to get right with you, to prepare my heart for you to move in me and through me in a mighty way. Mm -hmm. And again, this is what we see in the revival of the Hebrides. And so I just want to read a couple excerpts from this. Um, This is a little book that, as Adam mentioned, uh, we're reading through with our staff. Might be the worst book cover of all time. Possibly. And so, um, but don't judge a book by its cover, right? I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. It's about a revival that broke out in the 1950s and uh, in Scotland. And I just want to read some excerpts from that book, if that's okay, to highlight and hopefully whet your appetite and show you, like, here's what this looks like when a revival begins to break out. And so Duncan Campbell is writing the book. Uh, He was the one who was a big part of the revival there. And here's what he says. This is how it began. Two old women one of them 84 years of age and the other 82, one stone blind, Hmm. were greatly burdened by the appalling state of their own parish. It was true, not a single young person attended public worship, not a single young man or woman went to church. They spent their days perhaps reading or walking, but the church was left out of the picture. So think about that. The 1950s are like, man, what is our what is our culture going to? We have young people walking through the streets like crazy just reading books, but no one's attending church. And so these two women were greatly concerned, and they made it a special matter of prayer. I love that. And here is the verse that gripped them. This is from the, the book of Isaiah. I will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. That's the promise, they said. We believe that God is a covenant-keeping God who must be true to his covenant engagements. He has made a promise, and he must fulfill the promise. And so as the story goes on, these two old ladies, so burdened to see God move in their church, actually start praying every Tuesday and Friday from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. And so they're every Tuesday, Friday, 10 p.m. to 4 a.m., and then they're like, you know, we need more people here. So they go to the ministers of the church, and they're like, hey, Will you join us from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. every Tuesday and Friday? Like, can you imagine if somebody asked us to do that? I'd be like, I got a 2 p.m. slot. Like, would that <laughs> work? A, a more reasonable hour? But these ministers probably somewhat reluctantly are like, okay, like, we'll do it. We'll join you for your little 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. prayer meeting twice a week. And so Duncan Campbell, again, is talking here, and he says this. One night, 
And this is what I'm anxious for you to get a hold of. One night, they were kneeling there in the barn, pleading this promise, I will pour out water on him, thirsty, who is thirsty, floods upon the dry ground. When one young man, a deacon in the church, got up and read Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of God? Who shall uh, stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity or sworn deceitfully, mm-hmm. he shall receive the blessing of the Lord. And then the young man closed his Bible. And looking down at the minister and the other office bearers, he said this. It seems to me to be so much humbug. It's a pretty harsh word, right? Humbug. Uh, it seems to me to be so much humbug to be praying as we are praying, to be waiting as we are waiting if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. And then he lifted his two hands, and I'm telling you, just as the minister told it to me, he lifted his two hands and prayed, God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? But he got no further. That young man fell to his knees and he fell into a trance. Mm. Now don't ask me to explain this because I can't. Mm. But he fell into a trance and was lying on the floor of the barn. And in the words of the minister at that moment, he and his other office bearers were gripped by the conviction that a God-sent revival must ever be related to holiness, Mm. must ever be related to godliness. Are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? Mm. The man or woman that God will trust with revival, that is the condition. He goes on to say, when that happened in this moment in the barn, the power of God swept into the parish. An awareness of God gripped the community such that it had not been known for over 100 years. An awareness of God, that's revival. That's mm. revival. Mm. And on the, on the following day, the looms were silent. Little work was done on the farms as men and women gave themselves to thinking on eternal things gripped by eternal realities. Wow. And so just as we see in 1 Kings 18, we see it right here in the Hebridean Revival And that is this reality that, man, if we're going to see an awakening, if we're going to see a revival, it starts with us moving from outward critique of those people or our church, right, to to inward repentance. It starts with the same, and like, I want to get right with God. Like, I want to be holy because, God, you are holy. Absolutely, yeah. And in light of that, you know, if if we want to be holy as God is holy, we have to set up holy patterns in our lives. And that's the third thing that is required if we're going to experience revival. We have to have holy patterns in place. And holy patterns are just behaviors and new ways of being that you put in place to help you stay close to God and experience more of His presence. So um, holy patterns can be patterns of repentance, putting off sinful practices, putting to death bad habits, uh, removing yourself from from anything that doesn't stir your affections for Jesus. Uh, If you uh, were a church kid that grew up in the 90s like me and Jared, you might have had a story uh, like we both had where you come home from a church camp or you have some kind of fresh encounter with God and you go through this thing where you're like, I'm going to get rid of all my secular CDs, right? Uh, no more rated R movies. And you have a new sensitivity to like coarse joking and, mm-hmm. um, and, and unwholesome talk and that sort of thing. And I think, I think at least for me, there's a temptation for me to look back on that as immature. Yeah. But I think a better way to, to frame that is, you know, when you encounter God's presence in that way, you don't want to do anything that would make you not feel close to him. Absolutely. Like you don't want to do anything that would compromise the sweetness and the intimacy of the fellowship with him. And so holy patterns are patterns of repentance. Mm-hmm. It's putting off those things and developing new habits that help you stay close to God. And holy patterns, um, you can think of these as spiritual disciplines. Mm-hmm. So practices like prayer, reading scripture, life in community, Sabbath, silence and solitude, and 
Um, and you know, the goal of those spiritual disciplines is never just to do them for the sake of doing them. The, the, the spiritual disciplines, reading your Bible, prayer, all that good stuff, um, those things are not uh, uh, the end in and of themselves, right. but they're a means to an end. Again, it's a way to, to anchor yourself to God, to stay close to God, to keep yourself tethered to Jesus. You know, w- one way you can think about the disciplines is this is a way for you to create space in your life to be with God. Like, to open yourself up to feeling his presence. And I don't know about you, but I, I often struggle to feel God's presence. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that I can't control. Mm-hmm. I, I think about Jesus in John chapter 3, where Jesus compares the spirit or the presence of God to the wind. And Jesus says the wind does whatever it pleases. In other words, you can't control it. But you can set your sails in such a way to catch the wind. Mm-hmm. You can't control it but you can catch it. And that's really what these holy patterns are. They're things that you can do where you can draw and set your sail in such a way that you experience the Spirit of God and you experience God blowing on your life. And um, all that to say, in order for us to position ourselves for revival, to experience that, we have to have these holy patterns in place so that we can experience God renewing us from the inside out and we can be a part of what He's doing to renew the world around us. Yeah, so just to, you know, cover, make sure we're, you know, all kind of to speed with what we've said so far. If we right. want to experience revival, if we want to experience moving from famine to flourishing, you need, it starts with holy discontentment. Mm-hmm. It then uh, leads to this personal repentance and then this, you know, this pursuit of holiness and it calls out these holy patterns. And then fourthly, and finally, I would say this, if we really want to position ourselves for revival, we must be a people who contend in prayer. Right. In other words, we need to be a people who know and believe the promises of God and then we are willing to wrestle with God in prayer mm. so that we can see his promises come to fruition. Mm-hmm. And again, if I can just you know, pull an excerpt from the revival in the Hebrides, um, crazy story. Mm-hmm. Um, these same two old ladies that we mentioned earlier, they suddenly, they're in a prayer meeting and they believe that God wants Duncan Campbell to come to their city so that revival will break out. And so these old ladies send some ministers, like, go find Duncan Campbell. He's in, in northern Scotland. And they're like, go bring him back here. So the men go to talk to Duncan Campbell. They come back, talk to the ladies, and they're like, hey, bad news. I know you think Duncan uh, is called by God to come, but he said that he can't come. He's busy. And, and so the two old ladies, they just say, hey, you know what? No problem. He just hasn't heard from God yet, but whenever he's heard from God, he'll be here in less than 10 days. Mm-hmm. And as the story goes, Duncan Campbell's about to preach the next day. He gets c- compelled by the Holy Spirit to drop that and go and be where these ladies are and to preach in the revival. So he yeah. shows up, and he goes straight to this prayer meeting, and this is him talking. He says, I shall never forget the night I arrived. We got to the church about a quarter to nine to find about 300 people gathered. I gave an address. Nothing really happened during the service. It was a good meeting, a sense of God, a consciousness of his spirit moving, but nothing beyond that. So I pronounced the benediction, and we were leaving the church, I would say about a quarter to 11. That's a pretty, you know, moving service, jumping service. Just as I'm walking down the aisle, along with this young deacon who had read Psalm in the barn, he had suddenly stood in the aisle and looking up to the heavens, he says, God, you can't fail us. You can't fail us. You promised to pour water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. God, you can't fail us. Soon he's on his knees in the aisle and he's still praying. And then he falls into a trance again. Just then the door opened. It is now 11 o'clock. The door of the church opens. And the local blacksmith comes back into the church and says, Mr. Campbell, something wonderful has happened. Oh, we were praying that God would pour mm. out water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And listen, he's done it. He's done it. When I opened the door mm. of the church, I saw a congregation of approximately 600 people. 600 
500 people, where they come from, what had happened, I believe that very night God swept in Pentecostal power mm-hmm. and the power of the Holy Ghost. 600 people at 11 p.m. thirsty to meet with God. Why? Because one man gave himself to continuing prayer to saying, God, you said you're going to do it. Now do it. Wow. And if that makes you uncomfortable, listen, that's just the way you talk to someone when you're in a covenant relationship with them. Mm-hmm. If I can just be honest with you, like, the way I talk to my wife at times, uh, I would never talk to some of you. And the way she talks to me, by the way, is the same truth. She wouldn't talk to some of you. And by the way, the way I talk to my wife, I'd never let anybody else talk to my wife that way. Uh, we talk to ourselves. At times we, we, we verbally get into these altercations, right, where we're raw and we're honest. And sometimes we raise our voices and that sort of thing. And we can do that because of the sacredness of marriage. Because in marriage, right, in a covenant relationship, you have safety and you know that no matter what, like, you're not going to leave me. Like, in the good and the bad and the ugly, we're here and we're in this together. And listen, people that know God pray like that. Mm -hmm. People that know God say, I'm going to wrestle with you on this, God. You said you're going to do it. Now I'm asking you to do it again. And by the way, like, is this not the way our kids are? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know my kids are this way. If I tell my kids I'm going to do something, dude, they are going to hunt me down and hound me until I do exactly what I told them I was going to do. And listen, that's the posture we have to have if we're going to yeah. see revival break out. It must be a people who give ourselves to contending prayer, to mm-hmm. wrestling with God and saying, I'm not letting go mm-hmm. until your promises come to fruition. And if it's okay, I just want to read just one more story real quick from, yeah. the, from the Hebridean Revival. And so this is Duncan Campbell. Again, he's leading a meeting. It's about 70 people. It's a prayer meeting. Nothing's happening. And then listen to this. A guy shows up. This is a blacksmith. It's a common, ordinary man. He shows up and he begins to pray. And he says, this is how he prays. God, do you not know that your honor is at stake? Your honor is at stake. You promised to pour floods upon the dry ground, and you're not doing it. There are five ministers in this meeting, and I don't know where one of them stands in your presence, not even Mr. Campbell. Like, awkward, right? Like, if you're Mr. Campbell, like, okay. But if I know my own poor heart, I think I can say that I think I know I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty to see the devil defeated in this parish. I'm thirsty to see this community gripped as you grip the barbas. That's another community where revival had broken out. I'm longing for revival. And God, you're not doing it. Mm. And I'm thirsty. And you've promised to pour out water on me. Mm. Then a pause. And he cried. God, I now take this upon myself to challenge you to fulfill your covenant engagement. Now it was nearing 2 o'clock in the morning. And what happened? The house shook. A jug on a sideboard fell onto the floor and broke. A minister beside me said, it's an earth trimmer, but I had my own thoughts. My mind went back to Acts chapter 4 when they prayed and the place was shaken. When John Smith finished praying at 20 minutes past 2, I pronounced the benediction and left the house. What did I see? The whole community alive. Men carrying chairs, women carrying stools and asking, is there room for us in the churches? Mm -hmm. Revival broke out. Oh, what a sweeping revival. I believe there wasn't a single house in the village that wasn't shaken by God. Like, man, this is what happens when we take prayer seriously. Mm-hmm. And that's why as pastors, we're more passionate than ever before to try to cultivate this type of prayer in our church. We have a white, hot passion to go to God and know that when we contend in prayer, things happen. Absolutely. And, and, and again, just to remember that, like, 
We can have all the conditions right and apart from prayer and apart from dependence upon the moving of God like nothing nothing works. Yeah. And so just listen to, in light of that, what some of the great Christian leaders and thinkers have said about prayer. I love this line from Karl Barth. He says, To clasp our hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorders of the world. That's exactly what you see in these grannies and this blacksmith like coming together, crying out and contending prayer. They're leading an uprising against the disorders of the world. Or I love this quote here from Mark Batterson. He says, Prayers are prophecies. They're the best predictor of your spiritual future. Who you become is determined by how you pray. And then listen to this. Ultimately, the transcript of your prayers become the scripts of your life. Mm -hmm. In light of that, we just want to ask you as pastors, what is it that you're praying for right now? What is it that you're praying for right now? And as Batterson says, our prayers become the scripts of our life. Therefore, we, we want to encourage you to join us as a church in praying for revival. We long to see that be the script and the story of our church and of our city. Uh, one more quote. This is from Pete Gregg, who's another heavyweight in the arena of prayer. He's actually leading our online prayer course right now, uh, which is fantastic. And so here's what Gregg says. He says, you can look at the, the whole, whole of world history. And he says, the hinge of history is the bended knee. The hinge of history is the bended knee. You can look throughout history and you can see that it is shaped by the bended knee. The great moves of God and the spreading of his kingdom is all shaped by the bended knee. Uh, people like those grandmas in the Hebrides, that blacksmith, not famous, but people who are on their knees. History shaped by those kinds of prayer warriors. And that's, that's who we want to be as a church. Yeah, and so all that being said, I know it's a lot. I just want to end by asking you this question. Like, do you believe this is possible? Hmm. Like, do you really believe that God can do a great work just like we've seen in Kings 18 or the Hebridean Revival or all over history? Do you believe he can do that kind of work today, that he can take us from famine to flourish? You know, the truth is hmm. we know as pastors that we can attract a crowd. I mean, maybe not as many with the coronavirus, right? But we have figured out how to do that. We know that we can, sure. you know, pull off some pretty good production. We can launch some pretty nice programs. Mm. But if we're going to see lives transformed, if we're going to see marriages restored, if we're mm. going to see addicts set free, if we're going to see radical conversions, we desperately need the power of God. Absolutely. More than we need bigger platforms or more than we need better programs, we need God's presence. We need fire to fall down from heaven. Yes. We need to cultivate a holy imagination. We, we need to trust. We need to lean into the God who Paul says is able to do far more than we could ever think or ask. You know, we really believe as pastors and as a leadership team um, that we have come to what we'd call kind of a burning of the boats moment. Hmm. And where we get that from is a story of this Arabic military commander. His name was Tarek, and he was vastly outnumbered. And because uh, he knew that his troops would be tempted to stay on their boats rather than fight against this army that outnumbered them, he actually ordered their boats to be burned. So think right. about that. He right. literally incinerated their insurance policy. And then here's what he said. I think we can put this quote on the screen. Behind you is the sea. Before you, the enemy. Hmm. You are vastly outnumbered. All you have is sword and courage. Mm. There is no other option but to throw everything into the fight. And I really believe that this is a season where God is calling us to do just that. Yeah. I think we're in a burning of the boat season where there's a fork in the road and here's your options. You really just have 
one or two options. Really what God is calling you to do, he is calling you, right, to stop looking to these things that you think have been satisfying you and fulfilling you and, and, and to look to him. And here's your option right now. Your option is either you can press forward towards what he is calling you to or you can drown in a crowded sea of apathy. Hmm. You can either settle for the status quo and cling to life of idols or you can experience God's presence in deeper and more profound ways than we ever thought was possible. And you know, the truth is, like, and this breaks my heart, I truly believe there are some people who they are going to be just fine with cultural Christianity. They want nothing beyond that. There are some of you, maybe even listening to this, and you're like, actually, you know what, I think I'm pretty much okay with swimming in the shallowness of God's presence for the rest of my life. Mm. But what encourages me is I believe that it's in these seasons of crisis that God raises up a remnant. Mm -hmm. He raises up a small group of people who say, enough's enough. Mm -hmm. They get this holy discontentment. They get this hunger for God, and they move from consuming to contending. And what's so exciting to me in this season is it is through these small, seemingly insignificant, unimpressive groups of people that God changes the world. Right. It's what we see not only in the Scripture, it's not only what we see in the revival in the Hebrides, but this is something I've seen on a micro level even in my own life. I mean, I think back whenever I was... 20 years old, and I was, came to a place where I was like, man, girls aren't working for me. Partying's not working for me. Popularity's not working for me. And out of my discontentment, I ran to God and said, God, like, I repent. Like, like I realized, like, like, I can't do life apart from you. Please, will you take me back? And at that moment, I experienced God's presence like never before. What I realized is what David says is that, that in, in his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And as a result, I put those holy patterns in. I actually burnt my Incubus CD, right? I was like, my favorite band, man. And I was like, okay, I can either listen to, to Brandon Boyd sing about having sex with his girlfriend, or right, like I can listen to people sing about Jesus. And, and, I, and I began, I never read a book in my life. And I remember my brother got me a devotional book. And I began to, to actually spend time in the scripture and spend time in just daily devo with Jesus and try to pursue him. And then in that time, there was also continuing prayer. I said, God, I don't know of any other college students that are following after you. And as I'm praying this prayer, I'm praying, God, please, like, raise up, like, do a work in the life of college students in our city. I get a phone call from a friend of mine that, you know, Matt Sutton, who said, hey, man, I heard you just started following Jesus, and I want to follow Jesus with you. And so, like, let's read our Bibles together and pray. And so we started doing that, and then that grew, and then that began to grow. And you remember this. Like, you were probably in the early stages of this. Eventually, there were 55 to 60 students Every week, mm-hmm. college students who were coming together to sing songs to Jesus and to read the scripture and to pray. And in that time, we saw many people come to Christ, people like Matt Jackson, who's in our church today. We saw people surrender to missions. We have people that are still in missionary, uh, uh, doing missionary work and serving in ministry in different capacities, all because of what God did in that moment. Yes. And when I look back at that, I say, like, that's what I want to see again, but even bigger than that in our entire church that then overflows into our city. Absolutely. Amen. Do it, Lord. Um, in light of all that, to end this morning, I just want to read a promise um, from the Lord over you uh, from Second Kings 19. And the context is Assyria has sacked and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. They're threatening to do the same thing to the southern kingdom of Judah. And so Judah's king, Hezekiah, begins to plead with God to save them. And then God, in response, makes this beautiful promise to Hezekiah that in Christ is also a promise for us. And so this is Second Kings 19, starting in verse 29. He says this, This will be a sign for you, Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself, and the second year what springs from that. But in the third year, sow and reap. Plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Once more, a remnant of the kingdom of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant 
Out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God says there will be a remnant of faithful people that will grow up out of this crisis. And we believe as pastors that this is exactly what God wants to do in this current crisis that we find ourselves in, to to grow up a remnant of faithful people who are hungry for God's presence. And God wants to grow deep, deep roots in those people. And the invitation from God for all of us this morning is that He wants you to be in that remnant. God wants to do that work in you. And so for some of you right now watching this, God is stirring that holy discontentment with your life. And you're seeing that my life isn't working. And he's calling you to turn away from the things that you're looking to and to to repent and to place your trust in Jesus Christ. No longer to look at anyone else, but just to admit your own deep need for Jesus. And for some of you watching this morning, maybe that means God is calling you to become a Christian for the very first time to look to Jesus Christ and embrace him as the good news that you've been searching for, to embrace his life, death, and resurrection as your only hope for forgiveness, for freedom, for life, and for redemption. Um, for some of you who are disciples, God's, God's stirring in you right now this desire to change your habits and to, to, to put away bad practices and to set up holy patterns that help you set your sails and stay really close to Jesus. Uh, For some of you, this is an incredible opportunity. God is stirring in you to begin to to hit your knees and to to contend with God in prayer. And ultimately, our prayer for you, our prayer for our church, our prayer for our whole region is that God would pour out water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground and that we would embrace this as an incredible opportunity not to drown in in a sea of apathy, but to flourish in the deep living waters of God's presence. That's our prayer. Yeah. So to that end, let me just pray for us, and then the band will come forward and lead us. Father, I do pray, God, that you would pour out water on the thirsty, that you would flood the dry lands. I pray that you would wake us up to see your glory, to see that you really are better and bigger and more beautiful than we could ever imagine. Yes. Father, I pray that your fire would fall, that we would experience your presence, that you would move mighty in our midst. God, do this for our good and for your glory, for your fame. And it's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen.